to come. Our next panel also deals with the question of an imbalance of power, not that between law enforcement and the average citizen, but between the workers and the bosses and the systemic algorithmic surveillance of workers in the platform economy, specifically within the platform economy, because we know that those workers are often the ones with the fewest rights or the fewest forms of redress. We're calling this watching the working class, surveillance and algorithmic management of workers in the platform economy. And we have another three great speakers for you here. We have Yasin Aslam is the co-founder and president of the UK-based union, ADCU, which is the App Drivers and Couriers Union. Formerly an Uber driver himself, Yasin reached global recognition as the lead claimant in the court case that brought Uber to classify its drivers as workers, something we know that they'd been trying to steadfastly avoid doing for quite a long time. Amasto is a senior researcher on artificial intelligence and human rights at Human Rights Watch, a well-known organization. He's joining from the East Coast. So thank you very much for getting up and uh, joining us. And I know this is an awkward time for you, but we here in Brussels are very keen to hear your views. And Kim van Spaarentak is a member of the European Parliament and obviously heavily involved with the Greens Group. She's the shadow rapporteur on the AI Act in the IMCO Committee. That's the Internal Market Committee in the European Parliament. So all over these things from a political point of view. Yasin, let's start with you. Um, you've got a real world story, uh, very much like Diana. In our last panel, you've come up against the hard face of this problem yourself. So tell me a bit about that. Tell me what your case was about and, and how its outcome has been received. Yeah. Hi, Jennifer. Um, nice to meet you. And thank you for having me here today. So my background is from a worker. So I actually started working for Uber in 2013 when they first sort of launched in London. And I was one of the first, uh, the lead claimant, uh, the case against Uber, which uh, we fought all the way at the Supreme Court. So this was for basic employment rights. So uh, back in 2015, we filed in the tribunal asking to have a basic right, and Uber fought us all the way uh, in order to deny us our rights. So uh, last year at the Supreme Court, uh, they clarified our position that we are workers. So what that means is Uber drivers in the UK are now entitled to basic rights, such as the right to earn the minimum wage, the right to earn um, the holiday pay, the right not to be discriminated against. So it's just basic um, rights. So don't forget in the UK, we have three status. So we have like a, a self-employment where you're completely self-employed. You also have uh, an employee status, which is right at the bottom, meaning you have so many rights as an employee, such as maternity, paternity, the right not to be unfairly dismissed, where the status we want is just a middle status, meaning we just get basic right. Um, and that's about it. So this was a case that we started a long time ago, but the way things are going today, um, especially as we're seeing more and more platform work, it's really important for us to actually have these employees, right? That's what we really need. But um, cut long story short, even though it is a long fight, uh, it was a fight that we had to, uh, you know, like go through many challenges, struggles, uh, grateful for all the sports from the lawyers and the people around us in order to win this. But Uber is still failing to comply with this ruling. So in our case, where the Supreme Court ruled that we were workers from the time we log on to the plat to the time we log off, and how Uber interprets it is that we are only workers when we have a passenger in the car. So the fight still continues. So you know, as we move into this uh, space, we're seeing more and more issues such as um, you know AI, 
the way the work is dispatched around algorithm management and all these kind of issues. So these are some of the stuff, um, you know, like that is ongoing. But just to give you a little background, like the drivers we represent or the drivers in the UK, 94% of them are from black, Asian, ethnic minority community and 71% of them are from deprived communities. So they actually rely, like models like Uber, they actually rely on BME workers, workers that they could exploit that come from these migrant backgrounds, yeah? So just a quick insight, but like I said, I mean, we started a case, we won it, but, you know, the problem we have here is we have a big, massive, giant company that's actually literally could afford not to obey the law, and that's the situation we have. Yeah, I think uh, we, we sometimes see these companies, as you say, it's a cost of doing business, these court cases against them. So that's that's incredibly problematic if even the law is falling short in defending rights. Amos, um, Human Rights Watch watches this. Uh, tell me about the impact of AI systems, and, and also in relation to workers, but also those on social welfare, because it is not just those who are working for these big companies, it's broader than that. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Jennifer. As um, Yasin said, you know, um, companies like Uber and other digital labor platforms um, are, you know, really re relying on the the work of, of many precarious workers um, to actually function as a business. And a lot of the time, uh, precarious workers for these platforms um, are actually um, being managed and controlled and paid and hired uh, by AI systems, right? Um, you know, to give two examples, we have found, for example, in the US um, and workers info exchange has also found um, in parts of Europe that um, some digital labor platforms are, are using black box er uh, algorithms to generate earnings. Um, there are also other types of AI systems, such as online rating systems um, um, that are meant to kind of rate the performance of workers that also can be profoundly unfair and has a huge impact on what workers can see on the platform in order to do their jobs or even their earnings. Um, and workers have little effective means of challenging um, these rating systems. So we are actually seeing um, that there is, you know, a real presence of artificial intelligence uh, on platforms that are affecting workers' rights. At the same time, uh, people who shoulder the burdens of precarious work are also more likely to interact with social protection programs. So, so in, in the UK, when, when we were researching our reporting on universal credit, which is the automated benefit system in the country, um, one of my primary sources of interviews uh, was the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain. Um, which is the leading union for platform workers and other precarious workers. And what benefits volunteers told me um, was that a lot of platform workers were experiencing issues applying for universal credit during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, in part because of um, the way in which the system was digitized and automated and did not actually take into account the fact, you know, that um, people were unbanked or that people did not have the kinds of digital literacy or tools uh, that were required to apply for the benefit. Well, thank you. Um, I, 
you're mentioning a lot of these areas, and of course they're not just used by the platform working community as well. We, we see issues with companies like Amazon monitoring their workers in, in a way that's uh, deemed to be a little bit too invasive. We see lots of court cases around that. I'm sure we can speak about that in due course. Kim, tell us again from the Parliament's perspective. We're, we're focusing on the AI Act today. Um, but, but feel free to broaden that out and tell us what's being done with regard to workers' rights um, in the digital area, if you like, as well. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. Um, so for a long time, we thought digitalization would replace our jobs, right? And what I find extremely worrying is that instead, in name of efficiency and productivity, technology is deployed on the workplace to turn people into living robots. And this parliamentary term, we are really making some fundamental choices about the future of work in a digitalized world. And to me, there are two aspects to tackle. On the one hand, there is the aspect of surveillance at work. And on the other hand, there's the aspect of opaque, dehumanized algorithmic management that Aslam told us about, making decisions with huge impact on people's lives and rights. And surveillance is about constant monitoring of time spent on a task, location tracking, and even tracking of keystrokes or where your gaze is fixed. And for example, also companies deploying emotion recognition on the workflow to evaluate workers' performance. Um, we've heard of the real-time progress monitoring in Amazon warehouses, but also monitoring you know, time on breaks, including bathroom breaks, but also e emotional recognition software that's deployed in call centers to monitor performance and to hear whether you know, they're um, uh, sounding chirpy enough towards the clients. Um, and then we have the algorithmic management, which is more about task assignments and evaluation of workers, which is also increasingly deployed, not only in platform work, but also in, in the warehouses. So, for example, the evaluation of workers based on the data from constant monitoring or also monitoring and punishing behavior where online platforms such as Uber track workers' behavior, such as logging off, um, all without telling the workers. Uh, and in the end, this has then um, uh, an influence on, for example, their pay or whether they get, um, you know, certain rights that are, that are better for them. Um, and what we see is that the AI Act does not tackle any of this at the moment. And um, the current AI proposal is strongly based on a product safety approach, whereby any AI is, you know, has its bias eliminated and complies technical specificities is deemed safe. But even if AI works perfectly with no or little bias, it can still be used in violation of fundamental rights and, you know, harm uh, social rights or workers' health and safety. Um, so the AI Act has no real rights for workers when AI is deployed at the workplace. I am happy to see that the Commission has taken it on board in the EP's uh, call to regulate algorithmic management in the platform work directive. And I really think this is a huge step, although the text can still, of course, be further improved. Um, but to me, constant surveillance at work should be banned for all workers and all workers should be protected in case of deployment of AI at work. And I think what is most important is that we really make sure that the legal protection of workers against the deployment of technology and AI at work, including algorithmic management or monitoring software is currently completely fragmented and still leaves huge gaps. And we have the GDPR, we have the AI Act, we have transparent and predictable working conditions, the platform work directive and EU rules on occupational safety and health. I think we're doing something completely wrong if workers need to hire an army of lawyers just to understand what their rights are in the first place. 
So what I would say is we need an EU framework to protect workers' rights and health and safety when technology is deployed on the work floor. Because a work relationship is a very specific one with a relation of power. And it's difficult to rely on existing structures and digital legislation as consent. You can't really speak of freely given and informed consent if your employer installs a new system on your work computers and you can either use it or leave. So we need consultation rights, just as with other impactful changes in work relationship. And it should not be possible for employers to compromise on what constitutes paid working time to constant monitoring. Workers cannot have impactful decisions made about them or their work without getting any information or explanation. And we need specific legislation for AI at work for all workers. And that's why I call for a legislative proposal on AI at work. And as I said, this parliamentary term, we are making fundamental choices and we have no time to evaluate until the next revisions. We have to get it right from the start. Yasin, uh, Kim there mentioned the, the army of lawyers that may be necessary. That, you, in your experience, that's not the way you should have to go about getting your rights, I presume. I mean, the law is there, but if you don't have effective redress, if you have to fight all these battles, if it takes up half of your life, if it takes months and years sometimes to get that sort of redress, that, that the rectification, how optimistic are you that laws are going to be able to protect people who are in these vulnerable positions? Yeah, um, thank you. I'm glad you asked me that because I think a lot of people forget this. Um, these are vulnerable workers, people that don't have resources. What they want to do is just go out there, earn a living. So when we hear this word like gig economy, platform workers, people don't understand that. So it's like me. When I started this job back in 2006, well before Uber came, and then Uber came in the industry in 2012 and 13, it was a job to me. Um, it wasn't that it was something casual or whatever. And one of the things that attracted me to Uber and a lot of drivers was the fact that, you know, we're going to be our own boss. We won't have a human controlling us. But it's just like over time, we started seeing the different side of it where we were now being controlled by a technology, the algorithm. Yeah. And it destroys your life because when you're dealing with a human, it's a lot more easier especially when there's human errors and mistakes you can adjust stuff and make things right a lot more quicker but when you're talking to a robot and the computer says you know it is what it is it is it's you know you're technically destroying someone's life now as adcu amplifies and Courage union we've been organizing in this space since 2015 and we're one of the biggest union uh, that actually just represent couriers and private hire so we actually got a live case going on at the moment uh, based on discrimination where we had one courier driver who's working doing food delivery and we also got one uber driver um, uh, that got deactivated from uber's platform based on failure on the facial recognition side so we have now filed a case based on discrimination but people don't see the impact it has on these workers life because they're already struggling to make an income to provide for their family and when they're suddenly out of work, especially when we talk about Uber drivers, because they have, you know, like expenses such as, you know, high vehicle uh, insurance, et cetera, and all that. So when they're suddenly out of work, you know, like, you know, it, it really destroys them financially as well as mentally. 
And on top, especially in the UK, we also have a regulator like Transport for London, TFL. So they license Uber and they also license subscribers. So uh, let's say like, for example, one of our members that the case that we have filed for facial recognition, Uber reported him to Transport for London saying that this was not him. He's actually sharing it up when it, it was him. And the problem we had was the system was failing to recognize him because of his skin color. But he lost, he got dismissed from Uber's platform and he also then got reported to the regulator who then revoked his license. And then as a union, we had to go forward and, you know, um, we were able to get his license back. But we still have a case going on for the discrimination side. But the point is, the mental impact it has, people don't see that. Now, let's just go back onto the worker status. Um, and that's where my expertise comes from, um, you know, because I was just fighting in terms of the workers, right? You know, the laws exist and they've been around for years. It wasn't something new. But what will happen was we had a company that had the resources to drag it out for six years. And it is unfortunate where the workers themselves had to, you know, carry that burden and fight it all the way. Now, the problem we have is there's lack of education around like it's like someone like myself i don't know what the laws are and you can't expect me to know the laws what i want to do is go out there do a job and i expect the law to protect me and that's what's not happening i mean in our case like like i mentioned earlier on we have one at the supreme court but what we find is there's lack of enforcement and sometimes like especially here in the uk they talk about bringing in these new laws and stuff uh, protection for the workers etc but first we've got to look at is if we have existing laws, why are they not being enforced? Why is the burden shift onto the workers so they have to go all the way through and fight it, you know, uh, and, and while the regulators and politicians sit in the background? Now, I like EU because they are doing a lot of stuff because I looked at the new stuff, the new proposals coming forward, and these it actually fixes a lot of problems for the workers, meaning the hurdle is no longer there. It makes um, a lot easier. But my main concern is, okay, let's say these laws do come into place, What's stopping a company like Uber that got so much money to burn, you know, from not obeying them? What are the enforcement actions? Would someone like the Uber executive, would they be locked up in prison? Because maybe that would stop them from making sure that they don't abuse the law and they actually obey the law. So th these are the bigger, <coughs> sorry, these are the kind of bigger um, concerns that I have from the worker stuff. Because one, you got to understand as we move, we talk about technologies, algorithm you know how the work is managed or dispatched and all that kind of An average worker would never understand that he doesn't know what his rights are and one of the things we as a union did last year is we filed a case in amsterdam in holland for six uh, six of our members based on the way the work was being dispatched uh, the surveillance that was happening and we actually won where uber was then forced to reinstate these drivers and pay compensation but my point is an average worker that is just here in this country or just trying to make a living they just don't have time to educate them understand them now we've been lucky as adcu because we work in line with workers input exchange which is an ngo run by james farrell who's also the general secretary for adcu so he's done a lot of work in terms of educating us as um, the workers on what our rights are what the g PD, uh, like the data protection axis and how we could like how we what we want to know is how what the profiling that are being used how the work is being dispatched who gets to work how they get the work and most importantly like the transparency and the right to object
And one is saying as a union, what we're trying to do is build this data trust so we get access to this data so we could establish whether, you know, whether there's breach of employment laws and stuff like that. But going back to your main concern, my um, the question you asked was, yes, you know, the laws are there or will be made. But the question and not many people talk about is it needs to be really clear is how it's going to be enforced. If this is going to be the law, what is the enforcement? What is the punishment for someone like Uber if they don't obey that law? I think you're right there. I think uh, we mentioned cost of doing business and the, the GDPR, which I have heard described by business as goddamn privacy rules, are there just as an inconvenience rather than something to protect rights. But um, let me play devil's, devil's advocate just there, uh, for a moment, Amos. What do you say to these companies that we're offering flexibility, we're allowing these workers to set their own hours, they've got all the tools at their disposal, and, you know, if we're doing behavioural scoring, if they're great workers, what have they got to fear? Well, I think that the idea that workers are um, enjoy flexible schedules and can work whenever they want is very much a mythical narrative right, that is undermined on the ground by the fact that um, workers are essentially working for an algorithm that is not only just keeping track of, you know, their every move, um, but also pushing out a series of behavioral nudges um, in order to nudge the worker and persuade the worker um, to work at particular times, um, and to, you know, work on in particular areas. And, and so I, I do think that if we look at the way in which um, AI is structured in these workplaces, it's very much to the benefit um, of these platforms and not the workers or their schedules or their needs. And so I think it's really important to um, reframe um, the debate, right? Um, and, and I think, you know, to, to Yasin's point, I think by the time you get to expensive court appeals and, you know, expensive lawyers, um, a lot of the damage, I agree, has already been done, which is why it's so important to get the EU AI Act and the Platform Work Directive right. I think, first of all, we need to talk about mandated transparency that is meaningful. Right, A lot of this fight for workers' rights is going to happen on the streets. It's going to happen through collective worker action. And in order for workers to mobilize around their rights, they need to know what's going on, how exactly these algorithms are determining how much they earn. Um, you know, to actually not know going into a particular day how much you're going to earn that day and how your pay is being calculated because it's hidden behind a black box algorithm is, you know, the very opposite of flexibility um, and is actually, you know, uh, so opaque in a way that it really just strips workers of their agency and autonomy. Um, so I think mandated transparency is really important. I think, you know, one of the proposals in the Platform Work Directive that is promising is this idea of a deactivation center. Um, so essentially a center where, where workers can get to appeal um, um, being kind of booted off the platform. And I think it's important that deactivation centers like this um, uh, are not just run efficiently, but also have a strong kind of workers' presence, has a strong presence of workers' advocates that can guide 
you know, workers who have been deactivated through an essentially very traumatizing process, right? And that can provide the support that they need. And we need to think about extending these kinds of remedial mechanisms, right, that are more easily accessible and available to workers than a court, for example, um, for all the other forms of algorithmic decision making that digital labor platforms make, right? And finally, I think we can't um, get around the question of what um, AI systems uh, in the workplace need to just be banned outright. Um, so, you know, in the EU AI Act, um, one of the proposed bans is on social scoring systems, right? And, you know, the ban on social scoring is so vaguely formulated at this point that it's unclear what it even covers. And what, you know, I certainly hope to see is that at the minimum, it will actually ban online rating systems that have kind of an unfavorable and detrimental impact on workers' rights. Um, and, you know, I think there is a lot of work that can be done to prevent these abusive systems from even coming on the market. Um, because as Yasin said, by the time you want to challenge it, um, you know, like a lot of the damage has been done. Well, Kim, I, I see you nodding again vigorously there. And uh, of course, I should say I am playing devil's advocate. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we actually think these uh, algorithms are a force for good in the way they're currently being used. Uh, but Kim, do you see sort of a wiggle room in the AI Act um, in terms of how it might be interpreted and enforced? I mean, we don't have a final text yet, but in what direction do you see it going? Well, I think what we, when we're looking at the AI Act, you know, um, if you see um, what they're doing there, it's that it makes AI in the employment sector or public sector high risk. And um, still the only thing this high risk classification means is that it has to meet certain technical standards. And then it gives you a green card to use it. But, you know, even if AI works perfectly, it can still be used in violation of social rights and workers' health and safety. Think of this constant surveillance at work, um, you know, to check everything, every little detail that every worker is doing. But also more broadly, I mean, we have, have seen plenty of examples of being flagged in fraud risk systems without you knowing, uh, life-destroying consequences, unfortunately. And we've unfortunately seen multiple times in the Netherlands where we have a very high rate of digitization. Um, for example, we had the Siri system or the Dutch childcare benefits scandal, which forced the Dutch government even to resign. And I think, you know, uh, Amos and, and Human Rights Watch have written about and broader social welfare systems he also mentioned. And the AI Act does not give people subject to algorithmic decision making any rights. And I think this is really the, the missed opportunity and something I will really fight for in negotiations. And unlike the AI Act, what I think the platform work directive gets right is that all workers should at all time know that an algorithm is used in the first place and how it works, which factors are used to influence the algorithm, how does workers' behavior impact the algorithm, and ultimately, a human must always be able to explain what is happening to the workers and why. And I think, as, as also was mentioned by the other speakers, transparency, explanation, and clarity on data use, you know, people need to know what is going on and speak to another person about it. And this information should be accessible. And I really think we should get the information by default and not bear the burden of going through all sorts of processes to know what is going on. 
But as the name suggests, the platform work directive only applies to platform workers. And I really think all workers should get strong rights when AI systems at work, work at you. And of course, we also need strong enforcement because tech companies that currently use the system most, such as Amazon and Uber, also other tech companies, uh, think of Amazon and Microsoft, they're all renowned for trying to circumvent the law. So I really think that what is most most important is that we get an AI act that gives people the opportunity to, you know, go against decisions that were taken for them, which already would lay groundwork uh, um, for, for workers' rights. Um, then we should have the platform work directive that sets strong standards for the platform work economy. And on top of that, we need um, AI legislation for specifically on the work floor. And I think, you know, we really have to, to create a movement that works together um, social movements, trade unions, uh, but also tech companies that work together, create a safe environment and um, make sure that uh, that artificial intelligence, if deployed, um, is deployed in a way that doesn't harm, but actually brings good. Thank you, Kim. I, I'm going to ask uh, Yassine for you to build on that idea that, that Kim has mentioned there, that it's not, I know your union is specifically about drivers and couriers, but do you see areas in other forms of work be, beyond those two specific areas where the, the experience you've had could be brought to bear to their advantage as well? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, like, like I said, app drivers and couriers union, we focus on the drivers and the couriers, but don't forget the fight actually extends to every single worker. We're not just saying it should be. I mean, it's just like if you look at the example of the Uber case, it benefited uh, over a million workers here in the UK. So even though there's 100,000 Uber drivers. So when we go through these procedures, when we're fighting the transparencies, uh, the IA Act, it benefits all the workers. There should be, you know, like, and when you look at it, unfortunately, it's always the people that are at the bottom that are highly surveillance and put classified as criminals where the high elite people get away with it. And it's really like... Um, you know, like, uh, like, like, like the balance needs to be, you know, like there is a big massive imbalance and it doesn't matter whether you're Uber driver or you're courier or you work in some other sectors, uh, sector, you know, the, the, the act, the protection should be the same for everyone. So, um, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, just, you know, like I said, I mean, I could, I'm only focused on what we do for our members, but it goes beyond that. And the same, if you look at the case we did, uh, in Amsterdam last year, which was about the transparency and the Article 22, um, you know, it, it's, it's, they, they were test cases and it opens the door for other workers and other sectors as well. So it's quite important going that. But I just want to address one issue that you mentioned about flexibility, because I hear that a lot, um, especially when you speak to, to companies like Uber, they say, look, one of the best thing about our model is the flexibility flexibility and i think we need to get rid of that because it's it's not flexibility i mean in london alone we had drivers working 70 hours you know in a week they're making below minimum wage and what these people need especially when you're right at the bottom of uh, the change you need that protection we need these rights we need the law to protect us uh, and you know, like if we have to be employees, you know, that that is the way it shouldn't be. A worker shouldn't be choosing between his flexibility and his statutory rights. And that's the way it's been spun around a lot. And secondly, like, you know, I do like what Kim uh, and Leila uh, in the Europe 
are doing because you know it's helping workers you know like there's there's a bit of everything as um the, uh, Ahmed said like look you you need to get the workers organized they need to own these movements and this is where trade union comes in because it gives workers that power to fight campaign you need to be doing protests you need to be doing strike strike action but a lot of it is also lobbying now you know uber like companies and sorry for this i keep saying uber because i when i refer to uber i don't just mean uber but these companies have money for lobbying and they could go out there lobbying where workers like myself don't have it and we need people like kim uh, we need supporters within uh, these parliamentary kind of stuff where who will fight for workers yeah because we don't have that power the lobbying power and a lot of stuff is done through these channels as well because a lot of stuff like you have legal action you have direct action we also need the government sort of taking that role as well protecting the workers so you know like the eu is doing the right thing there but at the same time what i'm seeing now is um as we started winning so it's like the workers status case in the uk it wasn't uber did it by choice they were forced to do it and it's the same with the eu i know there are some good laws coming forward and i do and i'm very confident and i'm hopeful that you know they will pass through and eventually it will fix a lot of problem but the question here is uber would now go out there and try and buy out unions and try and get these dialogue going but what that does is it slows the process down so it's like if you look at new york uh, they have a union there called idg um you know like in the in the uk they have done a deal GMB union. Uh, they also recently announced um, uh, they recognize ITF, International Transport Federation. But the question is, how many workers are actually involved with these unions on the table negotiating? And that's where when we talk about that imbalance, the imbalance is still there because it's not the workers having that, you know, um, dialogue. They're not involved in the process. And that's quite important because what I, I believe Uber is now trying to do is they, they, they know they lost, they know the workers are organizing and they're looking at ways of how they could undermine these workers. And when you um, when they do these deals with unions, it undermines the workers because the workers have no say. So it's like in the UK where we want the full working time. I don't need to sit on the table with Uber and negotiate what my working time is because the court have already won it. And it's the same like the EU stuff we're going to see a lot of these lobbying a lot of unions being brought out by uber and that is my bigger fear because it's it's their way of trying to undermine you know all these ai act and um these directives that are coming forward well undermining unions is of course a uh, something we've seen as a standard playbook um in in order to disenfranchise workers that perhaps we see in certain countries more than others Amos, I'm interested in your perspective as to whether something like, like uh, Asin is suggesting that an EU law might be exportable and raise the standards around the world. Is that likely when we talk about platform workers or are these companies almost too big to regulate? Um, I, I do think that, um, you know, the EU's um, legislation, legislative efforts in this space will um, have global impact, right? Um, and I think we already see that in very small ways um, with, with Uber. Um, if you look at some of the things that they have been compelled to disclose uh, because of 
um, you know, Yasin and other workers who have fought hard in courts to get those uh, disclosures under the GDPR, um, you see that those disclosures actually do help uh, worker movements in other countries as well, right? So it's it's important to kind of also think through the global implications uh, of essentially regulating a global platforms or platforms that have ambitions um, to be global. Right. So, um, you know, things like transparency and accountability um, and things like in implementing a deactivation center um, and algorithmic transparency are all really um, standards that will go a long way in improving kind of global conditions. But I also think that it's important to um, ensure that we kind of empower um, local movements, right? To to um, to make sure that you know it's it's precisely because of local movements that we actually understand what the concerns uh, of workers are in particular um, areas and and how they experience platform work. So I think it's also really important to um, have legislation that is tailored to local needs. I think it's interesting um, as well to, to look at what these laws are used for. For example, um, just this week, Amazon workers in, in Germany, the UK, Italy, Slovakia, Poland and a few other places are actually using the GDPR law to try and get data transparency about how their movements have been working as they've been trying to use employment law and employment rights, but they've actually seen that the GDPR might be a better avenue for them to pursue. Kim, that's a lot of responsibility on you as a, as a lawmaker and a policymaker. To what extent do you feel the voices of workers and unions are heard? Because we are talking about, we talked in our last panel about lobbying from law enforcement, lobbying from these big private security companies. Do you see the same thing happening in the area of platform workers and workers' rights, that it's the companies with more clout in Brussels rather than the unions? Well, definitely, um, like the amount of lobby um, we are receiving um, from these big, uh, big platforms, uh, specifically Uber and the other uh, ride uh, hailing companies, but also from uh, from the from the delivery companies, they are present and they are um, not very friendly, just to say it like that. Um, but what I think is really amazing is that um, you know they are just um, a part of the story and they um, are not winning at the moment. If you look at the proposal, if you look at the platform work directive, um, I guess they're not very friendly because the commission chose the side of the workers. The, and, and it was the promise of the commission. The commission said, we are going, going to tackle bogus self-employment and we're gonna make sure that people who work for um, these platform companies are protected by the laws that we have. Um, and um, no company is too innovative or whatever kind of story they will tell you to actually make sure that they treat their workers properly. Um, and they, they did that. The, the, the European Parliament already called for it. Make sure that um, you know, they, have, they have their right to be seen as a lawyer, to be uh, as a worker, to be classified as a worker, um, to make sure that we have proper rules on algorithmic management. 
and um, and um, you know also in the proposal from the Commission, the platform work directive, it's very clear we are going to tackle bogus self-employment. Um, there is not such thing as an in-between status, um, but these people are workers, and we are we are going to make sure that the that their rights are heard. Um, so um, it's very interesting um, to see that now um, the platforms have become even more vocal um, to uh, to make sure that we change our minds on that. Um, so far, I haven't heard many of my colleagues falling for that, though. Well, um, let me remind our audience, first of all, that if you have questions for any of our panelists, please do put them in the chat. We'll be happy to deal with them. But Kim, let me come back to you because I'm quite curious um, to know what are the arguments that you're hearing from these companies? I mentioned, oh, flexible working, but uh, are they giving you other examples that, that we need, I mean, to, in order to understand their position, if we, want to, if we want to combat it, we need to know what it is that, that they're uh, claiming? Well, indeed, the, their main argument is indeed, um, we, we asked all, the, all our, um, how do they call them now? I guess workers, not, not, not employees, of course, um, uh, what they preferred. And um, if they preferred having a contract or flexibility, then they prefer flexibility. Um, to which I answered, well, that's a bit of a biased question because you can also provide flexibility and treat them right and give them the proper working conditions. Um, and then I said, so basically, um, I would say your survey is biased. And then their reply was, well, every survey is biased. And even the research done by the commission, you could claim is biased. And I'm like, well, that's not the strongest argument I've ever heard. But that was one of their things. The other argument they have now is that... Um, a lot of work will be lost um, because um, every job that you can accept, of course, as a gig worker is then seen as a work opportunity. And according to them, a lot of work opportunities will be lost. Um, so the amount of people that can uh, then do one right um, will decrease. We've asked them already multiple times because, for example, in Switzerland, they now have a new regulation. Okay, um, so how does it work out in Switzerland? How many work opportunities, as you like to call them, are actually lost? They have no data on that. They have, or maybe probably they do, but they don't want to share that with us. Um, but this is, this is the main thing. They are saying the people that we are helping with these work opportunities, um, they will lose these opportunities. And, and one of the arguments that they're using a lot, which I think frustrates me the most, is that they're saying, we, we are helping people that have, have difficulty to get um, you know, food on the ground on the labor market. People of color, uh, single moms who find it hard to, to, to find a job because you know, they, have, uh, uh, they, they face bias and discrimination on the, on the labor market. Um, and these are people who indeed have a more vulnerable position in society. And those are the people that they say they are helping, but they do that by exploiting them and not giving them any security or, or safety. Um, and I think that is, uh, that is the argument that just infuriates me the most and uh, something that we really have to push against. Um, of course, I, I won't say that there is no bias and discrimination on the labor market. That is something we have to fight against. Um, but saying that you're helping people by giving them um, a, a job that in the end uh, doesn't give proper protection is, uh, is definitely an overrated statement. Uh, thank you. Uh, Yassine, I'm interested also from your perspective, uh, what sort of egregious arguments you've heard for, for the use of various technologies. We often hear um, 
things like, oh, it's fraud management or, or it's, it's just measuring performance and it's therefore good for the drivers. Um, I'd be interested to hear what sort of bad examples you've encountered. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite an interesting thing. So I just want to start off with what Kim said. I mean, it's quite important because when you look at these models like Uber, they heavily rely on for these models to really expand is to exploit workers. And the worker they rely on are the BME communities, yeah, like like vulnerable, desperate people. And the reason why they pick them because they don't have the resources, they won't challenge, they won't spend six years fighting in a court. So when there are laws, that's a big massive obstacle for Uber or companies like Uber. So they want to do everything to, you know, stop that from happening. But going back, like I started working for Uber when they first launched in London. And I see this in other countries, like I talk to drivers from different countries around the world. When they first launch in any city, they spend a lot of money. It's like myself, when I first started working for Uber, I was grossing 50 pounds an hour, which was really good money because Uber was actually, you know, giving all these bonuses and stuff like that. And that's their way of coming into the market. They make it so good. The fares are a lot more higher. Not everyone's using it. They have less drive, but eventually as they start going for that mass, like as they start scaling, making the fares cheaper, uh, getting more and more workers on the platform and reducing like 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 as they scale as they get bigger and bigger we start seeing the different side and, and my point is look the model is sustainable meaning they could operate at a high end like if they want to protect workers and have all these protection and just you know like do what they're doing they can do it but if they want to be greedy and 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 by greedy what i mean is by exploiting the workforce and you know benefiting on the back of all these hard you know, like migrant workers with no rights. Yeah, that can't be right. So, you know, like, and it's very important to say that none of us guys are anti-technology. We're not against technology. What we're against is all these surveillance, like the way they, there's no transparency, there's no protection, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, like when we see, and when you mentioned the fraud um, stuff, like we did a lot of drivers that get kicked off the platform fraud. But when you look into it, what was the fraud that they done? For example, they might have cancelled a few jobs, you know. So in order to get away from that employment liability, they'll classify it as a fraud. You know, we get drivers, you know, getting um, dismissed for, you know, like there's all kind of reason. Maybe it's because you're like a rider made a complaint against you, but you have no right to challenge that. So you don't know what the complaint is, so you can't object to it. So we see all these kind of stuff that we ourselves don't know so there's like a performance management you know like even again like when we get the jobs like the fares we don't know how those fares are calculated what's happening when they call it the fixed fares how the commission works so there is no transparency and on top there's a high level of surveillance like for example even when i'm not logged on to the app you know i am being surveillance and what's really interesting about this is when uber first lost their license in london um, the Met Police, which is one of the biggest police force in Europe, actually come forward in Uber's uh, defense to say, look, they need Uber to be relicensed because they need it for, um, they, they get this data, surveillance data from Uber. So I am being, you know, like all this, like my data is being shared with third party, but I don't have access to it. Now in the UK, all these drivers or couriers that work for Uber, they do do this enhanced uh, DBS check. So meaning there is no issue, but why are they being surveillance? You know, so we got all this stuff. So it's just like, um, you know, like 
when we see this, um, like like when they had this fraud possibility scores or whatever, we just don't know. No one knows how it works. What are the profiling? You know, like we just don't know until they're really open and transparent. Then we know what is what. But at the moment, there is no transparency. So it's just like the workers trying to fight and trying to get that. Now, just um, if you look at New York um, City, the taxi limousine commissioner, uh, the TLC they're called, they actually put some conditions on Uber's license there. Uh, and this was based on after they received all this data, they analyzed that data. And since they put these conditions, the workers or the drivers working for Uber, their um, wages went up. So meaning having access to that data does you know it can solve a lot of problems um you know so but the main problem we have as of today no one knows what is what so it's, it's just a hidden side there's a dark side to uber and uber would never expose it to doing everything possible to fight and keep the lid on it well Amos, um, I want to broaden this a little bit because uh, as you mentioned that the disadvantaged drivers, I mean, they often come from disadvantaged backgrounds or perhaps there's more systemic issues at play here. So I know you've also been researching around the area of social welfare or social benefits and, and the role of automated decision making or algorithms in that. Tell us a bit more about what you've been working on and what sort of conclusions you've drawn. Right. I, I do think that the future of work really depends also in large part on the future of the social safety net, right? Because as work becomes more precarious, what we are also observing in the social protection space is that a lot of social safety net programs in Europe and beyond are increasingly being decimated by, um, you know, very abusive forms of automation. You know, in, in the UK, for example, you know, we with universal credit, as I mentioned earlier on, um, many precarious workers um, pay rent um, through informal arrangements and, and they aren't actually on the lease. Right. But you can't actually convey that to an automated system when you're applying for benefits. And so because you can't explain that. Um, to an automated system, um, you know, people's rental payments are therefore not legible to government systems and that deprives them of the housing benefit component of their um, social protection um, benefit and social protection measure. So, so we see these kinds of things happening um, and we see that um, automated benefit systems are not are, are, are very out of touch with the lived realities of um, precarious work and what it's like to live um, from paycheck to paycheck. Um, so it's important to kind of really address that. Um, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, we are seeing uh, quote unquote AI innovations in, in three areas of um, social protection. First, when it comes to verifying identity, you know, you've heard, you've seen talk about fraud management and the use of these kinds of uh, surveillance tools um, in the works, workplace supposedly to monitor for fraud. A similar kind of narrative is actually happening in um, social protection programs, but the reality is that um, these kinds of identity verification systems actually end up excluding people who 
um, are in fact eligible for benefits and making it a lot harder for them to apply for benefits. Um, you also see um, automation being introduced to means test and evaluate people for benefits and to also um, counter fraud at the back end to investigate people for fraud and single them out for um, very intrusive forms of surveillance. So one of the, the more kind of egregious examples of um, algorithmic profiling that we see in the social protection space um, is in Austria, right? And um, Epicenter Works and uh, Professor Doris Alhata, um, an Austrian academic, um, have documented how the Public Employment Service, which is the unemployment agency in Austria, is using an algorithm to predict a job seeker's employment prospects based on factors such as their gender, age group, citizenship, health, occupation and work experience and prioritizing people for job support services um, only if they have moderate employment prospects. So if you have low hiring prospects or employment prospects, um, then you're relegated to so-called crisis support, which is very threadbare forms of support. And I mentioned this because if you are a precarious worker, if you um, are a, a precarious worker trying to transition from precarious work to something more stable in a place like Austria, this algorithm is not your friend because it could just use your history of precarious work to say that your job chances in the future are very low and so we shouldn't prioritize you for support. So this is profoundly unjust and traps people in this vicious cycle of precarity and in-work poverty. And I think, you know, while a lot of the blame is at the feet of companies that are trying to exploit loopholes in labor laws, um, you know, to kind of advance business interests and profits, well, a lot of the blame is also at the doorstep of um, governments and regulators who, A, have just allowed these loopholes in labor law to fester in the first place, and that have, you know, in the pursuit kind of, of austerity-motivated policies, um, used technology in a way to cover up or disguise cuts to social protection and benefits that are very regressive and end up trapping people in precarious forms of work in the first place. Well, it, it's incredibly frustrating to hear you say that while we on one hand are incredibly concerned about overuse and misuse of our data and over surveillance, in certain cases, if the right data was there, the situation for those workers and, and precarious workers and those claiming benefits would actually be improved. Kim, um, we're, we're almost at the end of our time here. Um, any final thoughts from you on, on what you expect to happen in the coming weeks and months with the AI Act and, and what, sort of, what sort of forceful optimism can you give us uh, to, to keep people motivated? Well, I think what, what we are seeing is that um, the concern is growing and, um, you know, the, the narrative of AI being uh, magical, um, being like in the Hollywood movies um, uh, and just creating, you know, real life, like humans, like robots, that, that, that narrative is, I think, slowly going away and we're realizing AI can be used for good. Um, but we have to make sure we steer it in the right direction. I think indeed there is still a gap when we're talking about workers' rights um, and, and the effect of AI and digitization on workers' rights, but also that is coming 
you know, more and more in the political arena. It is a fight that we still have to do. But what, what brings me a lot of hope is to see that, you know, digital rights organizations, uh, trade unions, but also like workers on the ground and people in society, they are now coming together and saying, we want, um, you know, to make sure that all these regulations get better. We want to make sure that, you know, we are heard um, also when digitization comes. And um, there's really a push for a human-centered AI, not as um, and a human-centered human digitization, and perhaps not um, as um, it has been, you know, already been coined many, many times by the European Commission, but truly um, with people being involved even in the making of the legislation and um, the amount of people that are contacting us and want to have conversations about something that, you know, sounds kind of difficult, right? Artificial intelligence, what is it? Um, um, it's something with computers, I don't understand. No, actually, people are realizing that it just um, has impact on their lives and they want to have a say in it. And um, and that gives me, me a lot of hope. And I think what this will mean for the upcoming negotiations, which are not going to be easy. I mean, already in the European Parliament, we have to deal with so many different committees who, who can have a say on it. So um, imagine how we, how we uh, then go even further in, in discussing also with, the, with the, the Council and the Commission. But what I do think is that we're seeing that more and more uh, politicians are also talking not only with the tech companies, but really with the people and with the trade unions on this subject. And uh, I think um, we will be able to uh, to force some things into it. Absolutely. And I, I should say we've got a comment in on our from our audience, uh, from Nikita Sanula from Eurocities, pointing out that if the pending EU instrument on adequate wages is effective, might lead to fewer people taking on platform works. There's a lot of moving parts for <laughs> to right at the end of our discussion and don't have time to get into that now. But Yazin, I'll, uh, I'll leave a final word to you. Uh, what's your call to policymakers like Kim uh, or maybe those who are less receptive even to, uh, to your position? Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, I mean, I think, like I said, Kim is doing the right thing uh, and Leila, but I just think we need more politicians coming out because it's very important. Because, like I said, you got on one side, you got the big giant corporation, they got unlimited resources, they have that lobbying power. And as Kim right, rightly pointed out, when something is going against them, they become really like aggressive. You know, they start throwing everything around, they got the money and they destroy you. I mean, think of it from a worker's point of view, like he has nothing. His life is pending on these politicians to come forward and do their bits. The workers are doing their bits. They're fighting, they're fighting in court, they're fighting on street. So we just need these politicians to come out. And we're not asking for any special players. We're asking for a fair system. And it's just so important to have this. And and like I mentioned earlier on, it's not just about making sure that we could get these laws. It's also about enforcement. Because the problem I had is I shouldn't have had to go through this lengthy six-year battle while everyone sat, sat back and watched us. You know, the law needs to be enforced. Um, and they need to, and there need to be some kind of punishment. And right now, even though we talk about these great laws and stuff, but like there is not nothing to scare these companies. Saying, look, if you break the law, you, there's going to be some heavy, you know, sentences or something. So, I think it's just like there's two sides. One is making sure we do have these great laws, and secondly, we need to really look at is how do we enforce these laws. So, like a company like Uber, they literally like no one should be above the law and they shouldn't be able to buy their way out. 
Well, thank you indeed. That's an absolutely great point to make. And we hope we will see the sorts of law that we, we were all discussing here today. Thank you very much for the great conversation and uh, for, for your really great insights. And thank you indeed to the audience for paying attention. We are going to take a one-hour lunch break now, but we will be back this afternoon with two more panels looking at the question of AI and where it can be dealt with in terms of discrimination and where we can look out for the interests of those who are most disadvantaged in society and ensure that technology does not leave them worse off. The panel we'll be starting at two o'clock is Automating Fortress Europe, looking at AI in migration and border control, looking at the situation of refugees and where where AI possibly disadvantages them and what could be done in the upcoming law. And we will wrap up later on with a wide-ranging discussion on discriminatory surveillance overall and the EU Artificial Intelligence Act. So you don't want to miss that. We'll be pulling together all the threads from our other conversations in that. So stay with us, stay with your active and join us again at two o'clock. <laughs>